We believe that 2 Timothy is the last letter that Paul wrote. These are the words of a dying man to his faithful partner in the ministry, Timothy. And at the end of chapter 2, Paul encourages Timothy with regard to a particular behavior that he, Timothy wasn't necessarily a pastor, he wasn't an apostle, he was an apostolic representative, but these are, these are characteristics that would be consistent with what pastoral ministry ought to look like. And at the end of chapter 2, he tells Timothy that the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. And then he goes on into chapter 3 and and tells Timothy, it's not going to be an easy thing to do. Because as the church age progresses, men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, holy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Then he says in verse 5, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, and avoid such men as these. So while it is your responsibility to pastor with gentleness, it's not going to be easy, Timothy. Because the people he describes are not unbelievers necessarily. They are people that are associated with that church. Now we learned last week that some of them perhaps are the false teachers who may very well be unbelievers, but believers do those things. So it's not going to be easy. Timothy needs to be on guard. And then in last week's lessons we saw a subset or a subgroup of this larger group of people that in the, as the church age progresses would behave rather poorly. And in that subset are included the false teachers. And he said in verse 6, For among them, among the people that he just mentioned, are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with various sins, led on by various impulses. The sins probably are most of, or some of the ones that had just been mentioned. The, the word weak there means weak or silly or, or perhaps flippant, maybe taking things not as seriously as they ought to take them. But there are that category of persons, and that's the category of persons, the ones who are weighed down by these particular sins, who are not in the Word, that may think they are, but they're walking out of fellowship with God consistently, that are in danger from false teachers. We all have to watch it. The passage, as we... As we uh, said last week, may perhaps even danced around it a little last week, but, but it's, it's written specifically to the women, but it applies to the men as well. If you get weighed down with these particular sins, you are a mark for a false teacher. We'll talk about some of those as the class goes on tonight. Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Study, 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 and it never seems to really work. Ever heard anybody say that? You know, I study the Bible all the time. I haven't changed at all. Really, I agree. You know, and, and that's why you're that, that's why you're behaving like these people that are in the first part of the list. I couldn't agree more with you. So maybe there's something missing. There's a disconnect between what we say we believe and the way we act. That'll come out in this passage tonight as well. And then in verse eight, two names that are not mentioned in Hebrew Bible, but we know them by tradition: Janus and Jambres oppose Moses. So also. These men oppose the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected as regards to the faith, but they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, as also that of those two came to be. You see, Janus and Jambres were exposed for the frauds that they were. The false teachers in Ephesus will eventually be exposed for the frauds that they are, but they're going to do some damage in the meantime. And that's what Paul is warning against. Now, as verse 10 
continues. In these verses, verses 10 through 12, Paul now comes in a very humble way. A superficial reading might, might lead one to believe Paul's being arrogant here, but he's not. But in all humility, Paul contrasts himself with the false teachers. He says, but you, notice the contrast there in verse 9, but they, and then in verse 10, but you. He's contrasting the false teachers and then Timothy and then the one that Timothy's following. But you followed my teaching, my conduct, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, my perseverance, my persecutions and sufferings. It's legitimate to understand the my to go with all of those. These are Paul's, this is Paul's background, seven virtues and two experiences. My persecutions and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, but persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Both Timothy and Paul's character and conduct stood in stark contrast to that that of the false teachers. Again, I draw your eyes to verse 9, which says, But they will not make further progress. That's the false teachers. And then in verse 10, But you... You see the contrast there. You don't have to look far, uh, very deep, deeply to see it. But you followed my teaching. He had fully followed Paul's ministry, and by that meaning his teaching, his conduct, and his purpose, and then his life, his faith, his patience, his love, and his perseverance. The fact that, that God had delivered Paul from all persecutions would have encouraged Timothy to follow Paul's example. It's always nice to find out how it turned out for somebody else, isn't it? Now, I'm not really in favor, uh, I'm really not one to allow people to get up and give testimonies. Because, unfortunately, sometimes people get carried away. And a five-minute testimony ends up being a 55-minute testimony, and then the pastor never gets to give his message. And people, believe it or not, and this may be hard for you to believe, people end up getting aggravated with stuff like that. And they lose their sanctification, and, and they don't listen. But testimonies are not in and of themselves a bad thing. Because it's, it's nice to hear how somebody else was delivered by the Lord. Because knowing that they were delivered helps you in your time of need. And that's what Paul is doing here with Timothy. He's saying, I was delivered. So Paul now turns back to Timothy. He turns his attention away from the false teachers and he encourages Timothy. Holding up his own life. Watch this. Holding up his own life. Yes, his own life as an example for Timothy to emulate. This is not arrogance, but rather the act of a good friend and mentor encouraging his son in the faith by reflecting over their common experience and calling Timothy to remember, and because of that remembrance, to be encouraged. It may seem a little bold at first for Paul to set himself up as an example for others to follow, this is not the first time he's ever done it. In fact, he did it in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Philippians chapter 4, 9. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 7 and 9. This is not the first time he said, imitate me. But Paul's admonition here is not prideful. He encourages Timothy to imitate him as Paul had imitated Christ. It's that which is Christ-like that should be copied, not anything else. Sometimes we observe one who we consider to be mature in the faith, 
and then we seek to emulate that person's individual personality, that person's individual likes and dislikes, what restaurant they, they choose to dine in, what car they choose to drive, or the make or the model. And we emulate that, thinking that that's emulating spirituality. That's not what Paul's talking about here. But he's saying, insofar as I follow Christ, follow me. Follow that in me which is Christ-like. Paul could do that. But it's a human tendency to want to to follow the wrong things. Marketing firms use this kind of thinking all the time when they use paid celebrities to endorse their products. You might not have thought of it this way, but that's what they do. But frankly, it's a little insulting to the intellect to watch Tiger Woods in a commercial drive up to the golf tournament in a Buick. (laughs) Do you really believe that? (laughs) I don't. Uh, At least he might drive up to the golf tournament, but he's not driving anywhere else in that Buick. Nothing against Buicks. Somebody's probably driving him in the limousine. Or to watch Michael Jordan eat a double cheeseburger from McDonald's with Charles Barkley. But they know us. And they know enough people will see them doing it, so they're going to emulate that. In the spiritual realm, we should copy Christ-like thinking and behavior, not personal tastes. Not personal tastes. So I warn you against that. The virtues mentioned in verses 10 and 11 are obviously those which Timothy's opponents lack. Paul lists nine items that Timothy has observed in Paul's life and from which he has learned. Notice that these are things that Timothy has seen in Paul. These aren't aren't theoretical items. These are things that he's witnessed in the Apostle Paul. In giving this list, I do believe there's some organization to it. I think that's an understatement. The Holy Spirit works that way. But Paul begins with the items that offer the most visible and significant contrast to the opponent's. Look at verse 10 again. But you followed my teaching, my conduct, my purpose. But you. Now, now the, the false teachers didn't follow his teaching. <laughs> That's what makes them false teachers. They certainly didn't follow his conduct. Quite the contrary, as you can see in verses 2 through 5. Paul has made it ever so clear in his teachings that the truth of a message cannot be completely disconnected to the character of the messenger. The truth of the message cannot be disconnected with the character of the messenger. The two go together. Granted, truth is truth. I grant you that. But truth will be more readily received if the bearer of that truth lives consistently with what they teach. Otherwise, we call that person a hypocrite. And who wants to learn from a hypocrite? I'll be happy to stand before you tonight and tell you I'm the chief of hypocrites. And you're right behind me. So don't, so don't get the big head. None of us live completely consistently with what we say we believe. But Paul doesn't call for perfection here. He calls for consistency. We cannot separate completely the one who's proclaiming the truth from the truth that is proclaimed. They see you before they hear what you say. Have you ever heard the old saying that your your actions speak so loudly I can hardly hear what you're saying? 
We need to be careful, not just in pastoral ministry, not just Timothy as an apostolic representative, but all of us have to be careful how we act. You know, it's, it's rather difficult to be a horrible neighbor, to be a real cantankerous, hard-to-get-along-with neighbor, and then at the block party sit down and tell that person about Jesus Christ. They probably don't want to hear it from you. See, your, your behavior does matter. So what Paul taught, he lived. At least consistently, if not perfectly. I'm not naive enough to think even Paul lived it perfectly. But he lived it consistently. And Timothy had seen that. He'd been his ministry partner for years and years and years now. And he had seen that happen. From these two flow Paul's purpose in ministry, his patience, and the three virtues of faith, love, and perseverance. Paul had a purpose in ministry, and he was going to fulfill that purpose. And that's what his life was about, in fulfilling that purpose. I never met him, but I once knew of two marketing giants in the marketing field, Al Reese and Jack Trout. Their most famous book was, was Positioning the Battle for the Mind. Some friends that I had one time wanted to invite them to a medical conference, to be speakers at the medical conference. And they wrote Al Reese and Jack Trout and told them that the fee was no issue. Now, they did have a a limit, but it was a really high limit. Expenses were no problem. They could set the date. They could set the time. They could set the length of the conference. But please come. We'd like for you to speak to our group about about your, and give us some of your expertise in marketing. I saw the letter that Al Reese and Jack Trout sent back to my friend. And it was a very simple, one paragraph, very short letter. And it said, thank you so much for your offer to come and speak to your very prestigious group. We are honored by the invitation. However, since our primary purpose is to promote our marketing agency, and we cannot see how this speaking engagement would add to that primary purpose, we must respectfully decline your invitation. Sincerely, Al Reese and Jack Trout. You know what? Nobody in that group that I know of took offense to that. As a matter of fact, the letter really said something, didn't it? It said probably more than they could have said at at their particular conference. They had a purpose, and their life was about accomplishing that purpose. And if something wasn't consistent with that, they let it go, no matter how much money was involved. And believe you me, a lot of money was involved. I think it was $50,000, $25,000 a piece, and this was in the 80s. For, for a weekend's worth of work, I think anybody would fly over there, take up the money, and come back. But they were so purpose-oriented that they didn't even let the money get them off of their primary purpose. The Apostle Paul was that way. He had his teaching and his conduct, and then all that was consistent with his purpose. His purpose was to glorify God. Now, is that your purpose? Now, we all have sub-purposes underneath that. I, I would say per, perhaps uh, sub-objectives underneath that. But if your purpose is to glorify God with the time that you have here on this life, then that ought to filter the decisions that you make. How you spend your money, how you spend your time, how you take care of this temple, which is the, this body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Do we completely neglect it? Or do we do the best we can with it? Paul's life was consistent with his purpose. He had called upon Timothy to have patience at the end of chapter 2. What he's alluding to now is the fact he, he has patience. And And 
if anybody had a right to be impatient, considering what the Apostle Paul had gone through in his life, it had probably been him. But he's calling on Timothy to be patient with those who give him a hard time, and he's saying, listen, you've already seen that in me. Again, he's not being arrogant here. He's saying, emulate in me that which you saw was Christ-like. If it wasn't Christ-like, Paul wouldn't have wanted him to emulate it. Paul would not have wanted Timothy to drive the same kind of chariot that, Timothy, that Paul drove just because Paul drove that kind. Or to get the same color of horse or whatever it was. The same kind of sandals. I don't know. He wouldn't have wanted him to do that. Just, but he wanted him to emulate his patience, his purpose, the way he conducted himself, his faith. You know, one of Paul's favorite, his love. But also his perseverance. It's this final virtue I want to spend just a moment on because it's especially significant in the light of Paul's frequent persecutions and sufferings that he mentions in the next verse. If we look at the history of it, God had called upon Timothy to persevere in rough times. That's true. But he wasn't calling on Timothy to do anything close to what he had called upon Paul to do. It had been one thing if Timothy would have written Paul a letter and said, Hey, listen, my friend, you need to have patience and you need to persevere. Because Paul might, he would have probably been way too sophisticated to ever say it, way too kind to ever say it, but I'm sure he might have been thinking, You're telling me to persevere? You have no idea what suffering is. You, you, haven't come, you haven't come close to going through what I'm going to. But when the person who's been through the suffering tells the person who, who is going through it, but not nearly to the degree, when he says, listen, be patient, be kind, persevere, then it means more, doesn't it? The final two things that are mentioned here, persecutions and sufferings, are not virtues so much, but they're rather events in Paul's life that are well known to Timothy. They illustrate really why Paul needs patience, why he needs perseverance. During Paul's first missionary journey, he traveled to the south central part of Asia Minor, an area that you might know better as southern Galatia. You remember Paul's letter to the Galatians. He writes that after he comes back from that first missionary journey. But that trip wasn't easy. Remember when they started off, there was three of them? Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark. John Mark leaves right away and then leaves just Paul and Barnabas to take up the trip after that by themselves. Almost from the beginning in Pisidian Antioch, Paul was received well when he first got there. But then jealous Jews incited persecution of him. And they were expelled from the town. Oh, but it gets worse. When they went to Iconium, a town not too far away, they spent a considerable amount of time there. Acts chapter 14 mentions this. But Paul left because they wanted to kill him. <laughs> they wanted to stone him. Probably a legitimate reason to move on down the road. But then in Lystra, Paul and Barnabas, again, were initially welcomed. But eventually they were stoned. At least Paul was. Paul was stoned and dragged outside of the city and left for dead. Now, why would Timothy remember this? Well, I, mean, I know it's been a, maybe a long time since you've read through the book of Acts, but in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 3, we find out that Timothy was from that area. In fact, he was from Lystra. And it can be reasonably assumed this was his town. It's not a huge town. It would have been a big event for some new preacher to come to town and, and everybody to stone him, leave him outside the city for dead, and then have the guy come back to life. You know, that would be something you'd probably remember. 
And it's very reasonable to assume that Timothy indeed did remember it. So when Paul says this, that you remember the persecutions and suffering such as happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, he's recalling situations that Timothy actually would remember. Because he was probably there at Lystra and certainly heard about the others, had first-hand information. The word translated here, persecutions, diagmas, occurs twice in this verse. The word is specifically used of religious persecution, according to Bauer, Art, and Gingrich, the standard Greek lexicon. The word pathema, which is translated here suffering, is suffering that's due to the persecution. So one follows the other. You persecute, you're persecuted, and you suffer. Now, hold that last word in the recesses of your thoughts for just a moment. In fact, bring it from the recesses and, and hold it right up close to the front because I'm going to come back to it. The word sufferings. Now, as is typical Paul, he gives you kind of the bad news and then the good news. This is what he does at the end of verse 11. What persecutions I endured, and out of all of them, the Lord delivered me. You've already watched it, haven't you, Timothy? You've already seen what the Lord did to me. Now, he didn't have to say it, but I know that he knew that Timothy's persecutions were nothing like his. And he's saying, Timothy, he took care of me. Remember where Paul is when he says this. He's in prison awaiting his own execution. So he balances it out, and he recognizes that God is in sovereign control of the situation. The Lord rescued Paul out of all his persecutions, and he will rescue Timothy in Ephesus. Uh, the way he does it, it's up to him. He'll either rescue us from the trial or through the trial. And sometimes the rescue is affected by taking us home. Now, are you a strong enough believer in the Lord Jesus Christ that you can believe that? Or do you consider death to be the ultimate evil? You see? I know some people say, well, that's a cop-out. Well, it's only a cop-out if you consider heaven a bad place. God is either going to rescue us from the trial or through the trial. These persecutions that, that Paul endured did not take God by surprise. And the difficulties that you endure will not take God by surprise either. For if they get to you, It had to pass through God's hands first. He had to give his approval. Nothing gets past him. If a persecution, if a difficulty, if an act of suffering has come your way, or there's a persecution followed by the normal reaction of suffering, if that's come your way, God knew about it. He's not some sort of cosmic puppeteer that's up there trying to make life difficult for you. Well, that's terrible theology. God loves you. And in the big scheme of things, it's all working out for his glory. It's been described this way. I've done it, and perhaps you've heard it. other people do it too. It's like we're looking at the backside of a tapestry. Have you ever done that? You just see, you see threads and lines and different colors, but you can't really tell what's going on on the other side. But, oh, if you can turn that around and see, then you see it's a, it's a wonderful picture. Now, all we may see is a, a strand or a thread, and we cannot for the life of us figure out how that works into the overall good of God's plan. In eternity, we'll see it. I just wonder if he doesn't take the tapestry over and say, you know that thread right here, that one that just about devastated you? 
The one where you questioned me in the middle of the night, oh Lord, why, why would you do that? Maybe you weren't mad at me, but you just, you just couldn't figure it out like the prophets. Oh, long, oh Lord, how long? Oh Lord, why? This is what it did. You know, that, that thing that was a tragedy to you, because of that tragedy, hundreds were saved. Let me introduce you to some of them. Won't that be a great thing? Suffering's going to happen in this life. It's a reality. And that's why verse 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's not something you hear on TBN very often. All those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I don't bring TBN up to be ugly or mean. I bring it up out of objective honesty. Because the fastest growing segment of professing Christianity today is called the Word Faith Movement. It's also known as the Positive Confession Movement or simply the Faith Movement. There's nothing wrong with the Word. There's nothing wrong with faith. There's nothing wrong with the faith, the idea of a faith movement. But there's a lot wrong with this movement. And it's the fastest growing segment. So to ignore it... It's a branch off of Pentecostalism, but not all Pentecostals hold to this particular brand of the, of the movement. Some of the well-known personalities within this movement include people like Kenneth Hagin, Kenneth Copeland, Robert Tilton, uh, Paul Cho of Korea, you know, the, the 700,000-member church over there that all evangelicals are so incredibly thrilled with that Korea has come over to Christ. Well, yes, but wait till you hear some of the things they believe. You might not be quite so enthusiastic. I'm glad that they're coming, but we need to get them solid theology over there. People like Benny Hinn and people like Paul and Jan Crouch of TBN. As implied by the title, Word Faith, the supporters of this movement believe that faith works like a mighty power or force. Through faith, they say we can obtain anything we want, health, wealth, success, whatever, However, they say this force is only released through the spoken word. You speak it and it happens. As we speak the words of faith, power is discharged to accomplish our desires. Hagen's theme, as found in his booklet, How to Write Your Own Ticket with God, can be summarized this way. Now, in case you've lost me, in case you got upset about the Paul and Jan Krauts reference, what I'm doing is contrasting what the word of God just said with what the fastest-growing segment in Christianity says today. Do you see that? What the Word says, anyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. They don't say that. They say if you're suffering, you're sinful. If you're persecuted, you're sinful. In the opening chapter, entitled, Jesus Appeared to Me, Kenneth Hagin claims, and I'm just quoting now, while he was in the Spirit, just like the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos, a white cloud, he says, enveloped him, and he began to speak in tongues. Then he says, quote, Then the Lord Jesus himself appeared to me, says Hagen. He stood within three feet of me after what sounded like a casual conversation between friends about things such as finances, ministry, and even current affairs. Hagen says that Jesus told him to get a pencil and a piece of paper and write down the numbers one, two, three, and 4. Jesus then allegedly tells Hagen, If anybody, anywhere will take these four steps or put these four principles into operation, he will always receive whatever he wants from me or from God the Father. That includes, he says, whatever you want financially or any other 
aspect of your life. The formula is, according to Hagen, simple. Say it, do it, receive it, tell it. The number one is say it. Positive or negative, it's up to the individual. According to what the individual says, that you should receive. Now, if, you, if you're familiar at all with the New Age movement, that's very New Age-ish. It's also very Eastern mystic. Second step is do it. Your action defeats you or puts you over. According to your action, you receive or you keep from receiving. The New Age movement calls that creating a vacuum or to become act as if. Step number three was receive it. We're to plug into the powerhouse of heaven, Hagen says. Faith is the plug. Praise God, just plug it in. And step number four, tell others so that they may believe. And that's their outreach movement. So when we talk about them giving the gospel to people, this is the gospel they're giving them. We need to be careful. Now, if this... Don't let it shock you. In this particular theology, if you're sick, you're sinful. If you've got a cold, you're sinful. If you're poor, you're sinful. If you're suffering, there's something wrong with you in your spiritual life. Now, how does that line up with what Paul just said? Not very well. Robert Tilton, another name that's um, typical of this movement, on a Trinity Broadcasting Network program in 1990, he said these words, Being poor is a sin. When God promises prosperity. New house, new car, that's chicken feed. That's nothing compared to what God wants to do for you. That's from a book also called Charismatic Chaos. Recorded in Charismatic Chaos, page 285. Fred Price, another one of these fellows, also on TBN, explains how it works. Now listen carefully. Maybe you might want to switch over to the word faith movement. I don't know. I hope not. And if you're listening to this tape, please listen to it in context. I hope nobody breaks into the middle. If you've got one dollar of faith and you ask for a $10,000 item, it ain't going to work. It won't work. Jesus said, according to your faith, not according, listen, not according to God's will for you. Did you just hear that? This is Fred Price, another one of the word faith people. I'm going to say it again. If you've got a one dollar faith and you ask for a $10,000 item, it ain't going to work. It won't work. Jesus said, according to your faith, not according to God's will for you. In his own good time, if that's according to his will, none of that. If he can work it in in his busy schedule, he said, according to your faith, be it unto you. I don't know about you, but that almost makes me faint. Not according to the will of God, but according to your faith. Gloria Copeland, Kenneth Copeland's wife, takes the cake, though. <laughs> Give $10 and receive 1000 Give 1000 and receive 100000 Give one house and receive 100 houses, or a house with 100 times as much. Give one airplane and receive 100 times the value of the airplane. In short, she says, Mark 10.30 is a pretty good deal. The Word of Faith teachers, as is true in some other charismatics, not all of them. I don't want to paint the, uh, that broad of a stroke. Also believe that God provided for physical healing at the cross. As a result, in their view, Christians are not only saved from sin when they trust Christ, they're also promised a life of health. Now, a careful understanding of Isaiah 53 does not promise that. But this is what they teach. Kenneth Copeland, another one of my favorites, writes, The first step to a spiritual maturity is to realize your position before God. No problem so far. You are a child of God and a joint heir with Jesus. Again, no problem. 
Consequently, you're entitled to all the rights and privileges in the kingdom of God, and one of the rights is health and healing. So as a child of God, you have a right to health. But if healing is a part of the atonement, as they say, one might ask, why do Christians get sick? Why does anybody die of any illness? They would say it's a lack of faith. See, it's your fault that you have brain cancer. It's your fault that you have lupus. It's your fault that you need a lung transplant. And the king of them all, Benny, Hill, Benny Hinn, explains this. Well, said Benny Hill. They're about the same. The <laughs> only ones that are laughing are the ones that go back a little ways. <laughs> I shouldn't even admit I ever watched that program. <laughs> I knew I was going to get myself in trouble one of these days. This is what he says. The Bible declares that the work was done 2,000 years ago. God's, God is not going to heal you now. He healed you 2,000 years ago. All you have to do today is receive your healing by faith. Of course, the sad reality is the form, in the form of sickness, this has to be faced by everybody, including, and I say this sadly, I don't gloat over this, but even by these word faith healers. The ones that say if you're spiritual, you're not going to be sick. Fred Price, the one I mentioned a minute ago, he might proclaim, we don't allow sickness in our home. But his wife has cancer. And that's sad. I don't gloat over that. How can he live with himself? Kenneth Hagin brags that he has not had a headache, the flu, or even one sick day in nearly 60 years, but he's had four cardiovascular episodes, heart attacks. Paul Crouch. Paul Crouch might have healed Oral Roberts of chest pains on a TBN broadcast, but it didn't stop Oral Roberts from having a heart attack just a few hours later. Now, how can you explain these things away? And again, I'm, I'm not trying to be mean or cruel to them. I, I feel sad for them. Every time they get a cold, they've got to look themselves in the mirror and say, what am I doing wrong spiritually? Well, the way they do it is they blame it on the devil. See, they can't blame it on a lack of faith in their life. Their faith is strong, so they've got to blame the devil for coming and doing it. And sickness in the lives of these people is generally handled by exorcism. I saw Benny Hinn do that and his followers. I snuck into a meeting. One of the people from our church was a concierge up at the Hyatt Regency. She got me into the meeting. It was a meeting of his followers, of his supporters, his, his ministry partners. In other words, they'd given him a lot of money already. And there were thousands of them there, which he had charged $75 a head to get in. And he expelled demons from most of them. It really doesn't fit my theology either. <laughs> now, for your information, we're not just going to pick on them for that. i got, I got some more important things to pick on them for. But I want you to see if you have this terrible theology in one area, you're going to have it in another as well. There are four atonement-related errors on the part of these false teachers that can be documented by their own words. This is the first one. Christ was recreated on the cross from divine to demonic. I'm not making this up. This is their words. Christ was recreated on the cross from divine to demonic. To put it in their vernacular, Jesus took on himself the very nature of Satan. That bothers me more than that other stuff by a long shot. That in, that in, that in the statement, not according to his will. That's, that's over the top. Second, 
your redemption was not secured on the cross, but in hell. In fact, many faith teachers claim that Christ's torture by all the demons of hell was a ransom that God paid to Satan so that he could get back into a universe from which he had been banished. The third error of the atonement which they preach is that Jesus was reborn, or perhaps you could say born again in hell. And then finally, that Christ was reincarnated through his rebirth in hell, and that those who, like Christ, are born again can become incarnated as well. Jesus supposedly told Kenneth Copeland, and I'm quoting, they crucified me for claiming that I was God. But I didn't claim I was God. I just claimed I walked with him and that he was in me. Watch heresies, though. Heresies typically begin in Christology. Watch that. I'll, I'll tell you this one, then we'll have to close. Many of the word faith teachers also embrace a heresy known as tritheism. Now, we are Trinitarians. We're not tritheists. We believe in one God, three persons, but one God. Again, Benihin, under the inspiration, he says, of the Holy Spirit, said this. Now, this was from a live broadcast, so it sounds this way. He said, man... I feel the revelation of knowledge already coming on me here. Holy Spirit, take over me in the name of Jesus. God the Father, ladies and gentlemen, is a person. And He is a triune being by Himself, separate from the Son and the Holy Ghost. Say, what did you say? Hear it, hear it, hear it. See, God the Father is a person. God the Son is a person. God the Holy Spirit is a person. But each one of them is a triune being by Himself. If I can shock you, and maybe I should, there's nine of them. Huh? What did you say? See, he's talking to God. Well, let me explain. God the Father, ladies and gentlemen, is a person with his own person spirit, his own personal soul, and his own personal spirit body. You say, huh, I never heard that. Well, you think you're in this church to hear things you've heard for the last 50 years? You can't argue with the Word, can you? It's all in the Word. Now, later, even, his, even some of his friends said, you've gone way too far this time, Benny. Now, he was claiming that he was getting a direct message a direct message from the Holy Spirit at that point. He, he recanted those remarks shortly after that, which is interesting if you really feel like it was a message from the Holy Spirit. But then he reaffirmed them two years later. So it's back to what he believes. Benny Hinn claims he's a prophet. Benny Hinn claimed in 1994 that the homosexual community in the United States, he was in Denver, Colorado, in front of an audience of thousands, it's well documented, the homosexual community in the United States would be wiped out during the 90s, completely wiped out. He didn't, couldn't say when, but probably by 94, no later than 95. Now watch, that prophecy didn't come true. He made a prophecy, it didn't come true according to the Old Testament. He ought to be stoned. He ought to be glad we're not living in Old Testament times, but at the very least we should disregard him. But so many people aren't. I don't tell you this to make you laugh. I don't tell, I don't tell you it to make you cry. But I tell you it so you'll be informed. This is the fastest growing segment of professing Christianity. Now, I don't believe Benny Hinn's a believer. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be so bold as to say that. I don't believe he is. Not if he believes those four things about the atonement that I just told you. He doesn't believe in the same God that I do. He doesn't believe in the Jesus of the Bible. Let me conclude by saying this. These people are not benign. They are a malignant cancer on the body of Christ. And as Francis Schaeffer said before he died responding to this theology, which was just really getting its, its legs by then, just gaining traction. 
He said their the theology is far from biblical, but worst of all, it's cruel. It is absolutely cruel to go up to someone who is suffering, whose wife is dying of cancer, and say the reason she's dying of cancer is that she is sinful, or if it's not her, it's you. Now, that's not Christ-like. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's part of the package. It comes with it. I trust you're not being persecuted if you are, because you are not walking in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. I hope you're not being persecuted as a criminal. Peter deals with that in his first epistle. I hope you're not being persecuted because you're being a jerk. That happens to believers too. But if you're designed to live a godly life, you will be persecuted. Christ suffered. His servants suffered. As far as we can tell, every one, of the, every one of the disciples, the apostles, was martyred, except for John, and maybe John too. If we serve him, we're going to suffer as well. It's a reality. But you know what? And I know it's a reality for many of you here tonight. I know many of you have suffered the anguish of soul that, that you cannot put into words. Because I know you. I know some of you are suffering anguish of soul even as you sit here tonight. But you've got such poise that the person sitting next to you wouldn't know. But I know because I've talked to you. But I want you to know that, that our Lord has told us he's never going to leave us. And he's never going to forsake us. He will deliver you either from the suffering or perhaps through it.